Thank you for tuning in to the Voice Epilepsy Podcast, which has been brought to you by the BC Epilepsy Society and the international I Am A Voice For Epilepsy Awareness Campaign. The Voice Epilepsy Podcast introduces a variety of topics related to epilepsy, including medications, treatment, law, employment, surgery, mental health, stress, and stigma, among many others. Whether you are a person living with epilepsy or you have a personal or professional interest in epilepsy, the Voice Epilepsy Podcast is the podcast for you. Hello, everyone. My name is Deirdre Sims, and I'm the Executive Director of the BC Epilepsy Society. On today's episode of Voice Epilepsy Podcast, we will be discussing Seizing Hope, High-Tech Journeys in Pediatric Epilepsy, a documentary by Neuroethics Canada. For some background information, more than 500,000 children in Canada and the United States of America live with epilepsy, and about a third of those children continue to have seizures despite taking anti-epileptic drugs, resulting in a condition known as pediatric drug-resistant epilepsy. Brain surgery may be an option for some of those children, but there may be another option that is less invasive and more effective. Seizing Hope is a documentary that asks the question, can new technology bring hope to children who have drug-resistant epilepsy? This film documents the stories of four Canadian families as they learn, understand, and explore modern technology for the brain and go on a journey towards hope, empowerment, and trust in times of darkness for a better quality of life for their children who have drug-resistant epilepsy. The docu this documentary is a story about hope for children and their families in mitigating and treating this, drug this pediatric drug-resistant epilepsy. It's a story about families learning to trust their medical teams, educating them, and helping them consider neurotechnology options for their child. And it's a story about empowerment, as loved ones shed light on the ethical factors that led to their decisions, and in doing so, they empower other families to face similar challenges to their own. It's a story of how children and families affected by drug-resistant epilepsy can seize hope in times of darkness for a better quality of life. So I'm excited to be joined on this podcast by Dr. Judy Illis, the Director of Neuroethics Canada. Welcome to our podcast. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, Deidre, thank you so much for um devoting this podcast and this podcast time with your audience to uh, neuroethics and uh, seizing hope. Um, I am professor of neurology at the University of British Columbia, and I hold um, the Distinguished University Professorship in Neuroethics um, at the university. And I wear a number of hats um, that have to do um, with uh, advising national and international bodies around issues that pertain to uh, ethics and um, biomedical considerations, mostly as they pertain to the brain, sort of the central nervous system, which is the brain and the spinal cord. And one of my great privileges over the past few years has been to uh, carry out this research project that has now culminated in seizing hope um, on pediatric drug-resistant epilepsy under funding from the US-based National Institutes of Health. And there, initiative called BRAIN, all in caps, um, that's really devoted to uh, 
explicitly funding neurotechnological advancements uh, for the brain writ large, for neurologic diseases, for uh, uh, mental health conditions. And um, one of their priorities has been around the, the ethical concerns, both anticipating proactively and responding to sometimes reactively where brain technologies today are bringing people um, and where they can be beneficial and what are some of the considerations that all of us, whether we have uh, family members or ourselves are affected by different conditions or members of the public need to think about in terms of where devices that are either implanted in or placed on the brain will take us uh, in terms of improving quality of life, mitigating the burden of disease, um, sometimes making even, even making us uh, think and remember and behave uh, faster and sometimes people think better. And in the case of kids and kids, especially with epilepsy, when we think about putting devices or coupling kids with brain devices, the ethical issues are just so profound. I mean, these are young people whose brains and bodies are still developing. Um, and many of them are, are so impaired developmentally because of, of this uh, condition that you know, doesn't respond well to drugs. And so how, how should parents and caregivers and even kids themselves decide what's right for them in terms of a brain device and what's important to them? And what are the risks and benefits and, and how, do they, how do they trade off in order to make the best informed decisions possible? And that's where this project uh, really lies. That's its basis of the project and the basis of the, of the film, Seizing Hope. Oh, that's incredibly interesting. And some really in interesting and deep questions. So I wasn't able to make it over to Vancouver for the premiere and I um, am kicking myself for it. So if you could please tell me and, and all of our listeners, what are some of those key messages that you're hoping viewers will think about um, after watching this documentary? Yeah, so, you know, that's a key and great question. And let me, and before I even answer the question, let me say that we as a, as a neuroethics team, the producers of Seizing Hope will come to um, the BC Epilepsy Society in Victoria and all of your affiliates anywhere in Canada and screen the film for you. Oh, so that would be amazing. Do, all you have to do is ask. <laughs> Thank <laughs> and, you. Um, we can do it in person. We can do it online. We are poised over the next year while we, ha we have a year left in this big grant um, through the end of May to come and, um, and bring it out to everyone. Um, and then actually, I'll just say that towards, um, as we get closer to May 2023, we will be um, making the film publicly available, freely accessible on a YouTube channel. Um, right now we're in a phase of it being uh, adjudicated by film festivals. So we can't make it public, but we are available for private screenings, big or small, um, as, they can, as they can be arranged, so. Um, you missed Vang, you missed the world premiere. That was fantastic. We actually had all the families with us in Vancouver. We flew them out to be with us and we honored them to the to the best of our ability that they could be honored. Um, but um we we can we can come anytime. 
to be. Oh, that's well. wonderful. That's so, wonderful. Thank you. With that commercial, let me answer your question. <laughs> um, so, you know, you know, your introduction was so beautiful, Deidre, and, and some of the things I mentioned already, you know, speak to the question of what's important about this movie? What are the key messages? Um, and the key messages, um, I think, are, are a few. One is that these decisions are not and should not be easy to make. Um, these are high technology, uh, expensive, not entirely accessible approaches to treating a disease that is or a condition that's pretty common among children, um, even the drug resistant form. And we need to think about them in that context. Expense, high tech, invasive, and not entirely accessible to all people. Um, and then we have to think about what's important to uh, uh, to people, both parents and kids who and families who are affected by by this condition. And you know, in our research, we ran before we ever made the movie. We actually did a whole series of years of of work with families to understand what their priorities were and with kids themselves to understand what their priorities were. And what we do in the film is try to bring that research and the results of the research um, to the public in a very understandable and passionate way. So what did we learn from parents? Well, we learned from parents that um, good communication and trust with the trading team is perhaps above all the most important factor that they consider that they really, that the medical team really looks at their children as people, um, as people with, with special needs who um, are, are each unique uh, and deserve the greatest amount of respect and, and compassion as possible. We know our medical teams always try to achieve that, but it's not always easy. Um, and we heard from some parents that sometimes they feel medical teams are disconnected, like the components are disconnected rather than unified, and they feel that they and their children are being uh, treated more like subjects in a high-tech experiment than as individuals. And so that's a really important message. A unified team that communicates well and transparently, that treats families and children with the greatest amount of respect and compassion and transparency about what risks and benefits are. Um, the kids told us, we did a study on with youth, and they told us something really different. I'm not sure it's entirely different because everybody at the end of the day prioritizes seizure control, um, whether it's with drugs or with devices. But the youth told us that they really prioritize the ability to become autonomous kids among other kids and to socialize and pay, play sports and to achieve the greatest amount of independence and autonomy in a world in which people their age are able to be far more autonomous than they are. Um, and that's really what they were seeking through um, new kinds of treatments. Um, something that was really interesting for us is that the parents were really concerned about what these devices look like. Um, and so, you know, some of them are involved electrodes implanted deep in the brain and then a wire either running down the, the, the back of the neck or into a little, uh, almost like a pacemaker looking device. Um, and, the, and some of them eventually might even involve kids having to wear a baseball cap. So it's not invasive, but has a bunch of stuff on the head. And the parents were really concerned about kids, their kids being even 
far more stigmatized than they are already. And the youth were all about, ah, we don't care about cosmesis. Just make it happen. Let us be, let us be free. <laughs> and so that was really a contrast there. And then from our physicians, and we also did a lot of research with our physicians and treating groups, um, they were very excited about the capabilities of these technologies. They wanted to ensure that they had the best possible evidence that is scientific evidence to show that these technologies would be beneficial and the best kind of evidence to be able to help them know what kind of technology will be best matched to which kind of kid. So it was really all about science. Again, seizure control was number one, but then really how to pair technologies with kids with different conditions, different age groups, um, different family contexts. And then of course, of concern to everybody were questions around access. So, you know, we, we um, know that um, many of these technologies are available in major urban medical centers like BC Children's Hospital, that was a big part of doing this work with us, um, as well as Sick Kids in Toronto, and as well as two collaborating sites in the United States, University of California, San Francisco, and Vanderbilt University. But access to these kinds of technologies and these medical teams is not equitable to everyone in our society. Whether they live in an urban area and they have different uh, socioeconomic means, um, or whether they live in rural remote parts of the world where gaining access to an urban medical center is very challenging and might require a lot of travel, a lot of expense, a lot of being taken out of a community in which a family and a child is comfortable. So um, all these messages come out in the film. And, um, you know, we also have some contrast between one family, for example, that had all the means available to them to go to the United States for a procedure called responsive neurostimulation that's not available in Canada yet. Um, and another family that had to move for a short time from Winnipeg to Calgary for a robotic enabled imaging method to localize the seizure. Um, and in that case, um, you know, there was financial hardships that were involved in getting across just provincial lines, let alone country lines, to get the kind of care and access to advanced technology that the family needed uh, for their child. So messages of trust, compassion, respect, autonomy, access, they all factor into to our beautiful film. Oh, that sounds so amazing. And I, and, you know, it's, it's become so important to, um, I, I love how you had so many different perspectives and, and particularly the patient voice um, and, and the patient voice really prioritizing maybe some different things than, than other, um, than some of the other voices. Um, and, and it's become quite important to include those patient voices in all research. And, and that's become quite, um, um, uh, like, you know, like some, some grants are really saying like, you need to have, um, it, 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 the grant is, the grant is uh, rewarded based on, on patient voices being included. So that's what I'm trying to say, although a little bit less eloquently than you did. Than you did. <laughs> Apologize. Um, so that, so I just think, I just think that's incredible. Um, and, and I can totally understand as someone who lives with epilepsy myself that, 
that, you know, let, let me have freedom and let me have independence and let me not feel like a burden to my family and to the community. And, and I just think that's so lovely. And it sounds amazing and, and inspirational and educational. Um, and I really do honestly look forward to, to seeing it. Um, so why do you think it's important for people, including the listeners that are listening today um, to this podcast, why do you think it's important to watch this documentary? So I, I love that. I love that question. And in fact, um, we have a little survey that follows uh, the screening of the film uh, for, for people who are able to watch it and ask them, um, you know, what it is they learned from the film, what was important to them in the film. Um, and we hope that everyone who watches it actually completes the survey because it helps us know, A, how to do better, and B, what it was, in fact, that they learned from the film. So why do I think people need to watch the film? Well, because it's one of the, you know, we have we have a lot of films about epilepsy that show seizures and show pulsating brains. Um, but I don't know of another film about epilepsy and epilepsy in kids that actually brings the scientific piece, like the research on this topic as it pertains to decision-making and ethics and technology and takes like those scientific results and then gives them a voice through the voice of the families themselves who have had to make those decisions. And so it's an entirely, entirely new lens on, on research and on research translation and, and taking the knowledge that we learn at the bench. So I do ethics research. It's kind of funny to say that we do bench research, but I'm a neuroscientist by training. So I still think of my work as bench research. So what have we learned in the lab through interviews and focus groups and surveys and take those hard results and translate them um, in, in, into a form um, that is personal. And that actually is then communicated through the people who are affected themselves. And so it's a new lens, a new format that I think, and I hope, and we'll know this from the survey results as, as we screen and collect you know, those results that, um, It'll help to reduce uh, stigma around the disease. It will help people who are affected um, and in the front lines to make better decisions or at least be more informed about decisions that are involved and how others have sort of, you know, managed their way through this journey of decision-making. It'll help doctors and medical teams um, understand more closely what families are going through and what their own colleagues have told them and, and have expressed through the research. So it, it's the whole pipeline of research to translation uh, expressed through the voices and eyes and ears of four families themselves. And I think that new format um, conveys information that, you know, maybe people think, well, I knew that all along, but when you hear it through their voices and through their lives, you hear it in a different way. And, and I, I hope that that messaging in that format um, just, just helps everyone. It helps everyone affected 
and it helps you know the kids who are in school with other kids who have epilepsy it helps um, employers understand how parents with kids with epilepsy what they do with on a daily basis it helps doctors better understand what families and kids are thinking themselves and prioritizing so i'd like to think that um everyone should watch it whether they're interested in epilepsy or not you know um uh everyone in today's world is faced with some kind of brain disease in in their lives whether it's epilepsy or an aging related disease like alzheimer's or depression think of the high rates of these kind of brain related diseases across our societies even under even having more knowledge about one disease could have a really positive effect that generalizes to um, other conditions that people may be more familiar with. Oh, that's perfect. Well, once this goes public, uh, we will have to keep it on our website so that it's there just for people to access whenever, um, whenever they can, because it sounds so important and it sounds so helpful, right, to people who are wrestling with some of these questions, right? That this that this documentary is going to tackle. I can't I can't wait to see it. I'm just, the more you talk, the more excited I am, and I'm sure that our listeners are too. So this this documentary it focused very specifically on pediatric drug resistant epilepsy, um, and so you know you know drug drug resistant epilepsy, uh, of course, is also seen in in adults living with epilepsy, is there, was there a specific reason uh, why you chose to focus on pediatric drug resistant epilepsy? Yeah, so it's another great question. You know, for us, there was a particular challenge in thinking about the neurodevelopmental issues. So, um, you know, in, a, in adults where um, life can be somewhat more stable, um, you know, you've gotten to a point where uh, drugs don't work and you have to look at alternatives um, and you know an alternative if it's a single occurring alternative it just seems like an alternative one might go for it but alternatives when you have a, a, a youth a kid or a child or an adolescent um, the brains are still evolving are still developing and so there'll be questions about um, you know tolerance of a device um, would somebody potentially, you know, outgrow the epilepsy or at least outgrow the severity of the epilepsy? And now we're talking about doing something very invasive, like putting an electrode into the brain um, or, uh, or into, you know, the vagus nerve in the back of the neck. So I think questions of invasiveness were particularly acute for us when we were thinking about uh, young, young people. Um, and then, you know, questions about what happens when the brain, and these are more medical questions for people like my co-producer and co-PI, Dr. Patrick McDonald, you know, when the brain grows, what, how do these electrodes move around in the brain? Um, you know, and um, there's still a lot of science that we need to understand about that. Would we ever consider, uh, would neurosurgeons ever consider explanting an electrode that is removing it from the brain if it seemed to not be working anymore, uh, if a target has moved, a target has slipped, uh, or, or the electrode has slipped, or the brain just changed now, it wasn't working anymore. Do the electrodes stay in or do they come out? Uh, you could ask that question for an adult as well, 
But in the context of a, of a child, I think uh, we're talking about a lifelong intervention. And I, for us, the, the question was, you know, it just took the ethics challenge and put it, it knocked into the stratosphere. And, and we like taking on tough challenges and what we do in neuroethics. <laughs> And yeah, and that is and, and, that and is then a the tough impact, one for sure. Right. And then the impact, right, for being able to help, um, you know, families and kids. So the the long the longitudinal impact seemed just so great if we could make a difference. So we wanted to be there. Oh, that's perfect. That's wonderful. And so there's four families within this documentary. Uh, uh, for for yeah, four children and their families. Um, so how were these children and their families chosen for the, for the film? What was that process? Yeah. So, you know, that's a great question to ask of people who are involved in the ethics business, because we had to follow, uh, very carefully proper research protocols so as to not, uh, violate or disrespect the privacy, uh, and health information of people who are being treated. So our process, uh, to identify the families was to, go to our collaborating physicians at BC Children's Hospital. And we thank Dr. Mary Connolly, who's the head of pediatric neurology there for all her assistance. Um, and she was also part of the research team, of course. Um, and uh, given the, the results that we had from the research part of the work, we were able to, uh, I'm gonna say, create a portfolio of, or a profile of, of kids and families who we thought would be good for the film uh, in terms of both their medical condition and their life situation. And we shared those characteristics with her. And then she, together with Dr. Patrick McDonald, Dr. George Abraham at SickKids and our collaborators in the United States looked into their records to see which families uh, match the criteria of people we were looking for um, also, you know, who might be uh, articulate on camera and so forth. And then they reached out to those families and asked for their permission for us to contact the families. So there was many, many layers of contact before we ever got involved uh, with the families themselves. And then uh, a shout out to our um, uh our, our uh, production company, Connext Innovation Studios, and Dr. Johan Rodwi, um, who helped uh, drive the film forward. Uh, he made the first contact with the families, interviewed them, went through a series of, of I'm gonna say like mutual screening procedures to ensure that there was sort of mutual interest. People were, you know, would be good on camera, articulate on camera. Uh, there was people had enough time to devote to the process because filming took at least one day per family and um and we as a film team uh you know we did we did two in vancouver one in ontario and one filming in winnipeg people had to be available um and so on um but again we it was a very rigorous protocol and then we found the four most wonderful families we could possibly have ever imagined they were just perfect and so generous with their time and um and forthrightness in sharing their stories with us oh that's so wonderful i'm so glad that you were able to find the perfect families and that sounds like such a process and and um and like you said an ethical one that met all the uh 
you know, the rigors of what you had to go through. So that's, that's amazing. I'd love to know more about how you conceptualize this project. So how did it develop from a research project to filming and producing this documentary? Yeah. Um, so the, the research was is a, compo a piece that we're very familiar with. We, I mean, we know how to do the research. So that was that was kind of standard practice for us. But then when we engaged with Connect Studios, um, we followed a, a value-based design protocol um, where there was really a journey in thinking about what our goal, what our results were telling us from the research, what our goals were in creating a movie like this. Um, and, and why a film? And so in fact, there was a whole step in between once we had our results where we went back to families uh, who had participated with us and we said, okay, here are our results. What would help you in having them communicated? You know, is it in like a academic boring journal paper like people like me read that probably most people don't really read? Is it in the form of infographics, which in fact we also produced? And I, I hope that um, the BC Society, uh, the Epilepsy Society will actually um, have our infographics around epilepsy on its website. I don't know if you have that yet, but we produced those like simple inf infographics describing the results of each of our research projects. There's six of them. And then we started querying about a media project. And we learned from them that they wanted something between 20 and 30 minutes that focuses on families, that has expert authoritative commentary, and that was sort of easy to digest. And we followed their guidance uh, and then used you know, a proper, proper methodology around this values design to create the film. So again, it was identifying the goals based on what we heard from people so that we were responsive to what we learned from the patients and families themselves. Um, yeah, and putting all the pieces together in really sort of a, a, a journey. And then, you know, identifying families, just as, as we spoke about uh, filming, you know, hours and hours of filming, and then the editing process with Cassiar Studio, Studios, who I'm also happy to give a shout out to, who were our director and filmmakers. I'm working with them to, to find the right messaging, because you know, with hours of filming, and this is something that I had to learn about. Uh, you could you could create probably ten different films from the same footage, but it was it was finding the gems out of those hours for the right film um, that was part of the part of the process together. Yeah, and I think I think a film just personally is just so such a great way to put out. Uh, research and and it's so accessible and it's so interesting and um i think that was such a great choice on on your part uh we can certainly get the infographics up on our website uh that would be that would be amazing to have that information on our website i would love that so i have a very important question this is probably the most important out of all our questions which is how can we see this documentary and where how how, how can we get this done Okay, so um, <laughs> right now the way to do it is to schedule a screening with us. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, earlier, Deidre, we can do it uh, over, um, you know, a, a Zoom kind of, a virtual kind of format. We can screen it. 
uh, we can do this as part of a what Neuroethics Canada calls a community conversation, where we host a screening virtually, and um, we we in, and everyone can attend. We've had three to four hundred people on some of our community conversations. We can do it that way, but we also are available. So we in, is myself, my team, uh, and depending on where we do it, we can uh, come out and screen the film in a movie theater or a community center or a hospital. Uh, and um, what we love to do is do a screening and then hold a little discussion afterwards with the audience uh, and uh, answer questions, clarify anything that needs to be clarified. So right now we are in the phase of screening and the greater reach we can have, the happier we will be. So it's just a matter of coordinating. Perfect. Well, I think as soon as, um, before I say goodbye to you today in this documentary, um, sorry, in this podcast, <laughs> I've got documentary on the brain now. Um, I think I can, we should arrange something. We should do next steps on this because I think our community would love to hear from this. I think there's some great opportunities that we could have around uh, private screenings. Brilliant. Um, so we'll connect as soon as we stop recording this, we'll connect on, on some, some next steps around that. How does that sound? Sounds excellent, Idre. Thank you. Okay, perfect. So how can our listeners stay informed about now that they know about it, now that they've we've got this podcast out, and they wanted to, you know, know where the, you know, which festivals it's going to, and when it becomes public, how can they stay informed about all the latest updates about yeah. what's going on for this documentary? So I invite everyone to visit my website, neuroethicscanada.ca, and we will keep all the information live and up to date. There, it might be on our homepage, or it might be under page called events, depending on where things are at. And um, as well, um, we have the possibility to uh, sign up for a mailing list that we hold that, and we use to invite uh, the general public, listeners, patients, uh, everyone, stakeholders, uh, to keep everyone abreast of the events that we're holding. They may be epilepsy related or not. Um, but we can certainly, if, if you feel that your listeners and um, constituents would be interested, we can certainly generate a, a specific Seizing Hope uh, email list and, uh, and uh, work, work with that list to you know, push information out as, as it becomes available, as there are updates, screenings, and so forth. I'd be very happy to consider that with you. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Thank you for sharing those. And those are that's another thing we can get out on our website, our social media. So, um, you know, our e-blast list, all that kind of thing. We can get out all your information um, to our to our people that way. So one, what's that, one last question is, um, what is next following? So the world premiere uh, has happened. So what's what's next? What's what's. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so. Um, Two, two things, but they're not singular things. They're two parallel tracks. So one is um, bringing screenings to people who uh, wish us to be there and be present. 
for screenings and the kind of things that you and I will talk about, but also on our uh, on our website, uh, uh, seizinghopefilm.com, I think that's the right website. We have the trailer and we also have um, press kits, screening kits and educational kits that we've made available so that um, when it becomes, um, so that people can actually screen the film themselves. So, so right now, as I said, we can't make it public public um, because that would then bump us out of uh, uh, the adjudicate, the, out of the festivals. But as long as you work with us, um, we can facilitate private screenings. And um, that's what's happening now. And that's all happening again for the next nine months or so, nine or 10 months, um, alongside the collection of feedback from viewers um, about, uh, about the film itself. And that will then inform what we need to do next for people affected with epilepsy and especially kids who are the focus of this particular project. Perfect. Well, I wish you all the best with this documentary. I think it's going to be amazing. We will continue to um, follow the progress. We'll continue to promote it. I can't wait to see it. And I'm sure our listeners feel the same way. It's going to be so interesting. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Dr. Illis. And thank you to our listeners for listening today's, to today's episode of the Voice Epilepsy podcast. Thank you for joining us for another Voice Epilepsy podcast episode. Don't forget to follow us on all of our BC Epilepsy Society and I Am a Voice for Epilepsy Awareness social media platform. In closing, remember, you matter and we are here for you. We hope you'll make Thursdays our epilepsy date night and tune in to the Voice Epilepsy podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.